This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Are you a jilted lover turned bitter from every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes calling? Are you a child of wealth, desperate to make progress through a little bit of Italianation or inheritance powder? If so, tune in quickly to this episode of Ridiculous History. My name's Ben. Ben, your fast talking's got my head spinning. Uh, you made me forget my name once again. Give me one second. Okay, it's Noel. And it's true, this is Ridiculous History. And I'm just going to say right at the front of the show, I'm a little hoarse today, um, as opposed to a giant, luxurious steed. Mm. <laughs> Worth it. Well, you don't know, I think it gives uh, a bit of gravitas to your statements. And hopefully our super producer, Casey Pegram, can fix it in post. The man is a wizard, I am telling you. He is also, in addition to being uh, quite talented, uh, Casey Pegram is also a very, I would say, principled man. That's true. If he was ever to slip you a Mickey, he would have damn good reason. Let me tell you what. It would be a justified Mickey. Yeah. Uh, we had talked about this off the air. If either of us ever walked by and saw super producer Casey Pegram dragging a body-sized garbage bag down the street, we would just pick up the other end and help him move it. Because even if it were a body, he would have good reason for his actions. 
And, you know, that, that, that antiquated term slipped him a Mickey or her a Mickey I just used, uh, typically referred more to lacing a drink with a psychoactive drug or something that would incapacitate someone, not necessarily kill them like the Mickeys that we're talking about today would. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, today we are talking about the dark art of poison. Not just any poison, however. We're talking about one of the most storied, notorious, and for a time popular poisons in human civilization. We'd like to introduce you to arsenic. That's right. It actually earned the title the king of poison by the 15th century, but it had a quite uh, rich history even well before that. Right. We know that ancient Egyptians mined uh, arsenic compounds. We know that in one of the very, very early uh, pharmacological texts, the De Materia Medica, arsenic is also mentioned. Uh, this is a naturally occurring element that is just across the planet, and you can find a map. Uh, of naturally occurring arsenic here in the United States. It's spooky. It's scary stuff. And the fact that it was naturally occurring is one of the many reasons that made it such a popular tool for getting the job done because it was easy to get because of its use in everything from medication to pesticides to industrial processing materials and things like that. And it is odorless, colorless, and tasteless, and dissolves in water and any other liquids easily in its oxide form. Um, the word arsenic itself comes from the Greek arsenikon, which meant bold or potent, and that is an apt moniker for this uh, little killer. Mm -hmm. And we do know that even in ancient times, people were aware of arsenic's potential as a poison. Uh, the first law against poisoning was passed in 82 BCE. Uh, it was a Roman law that specifically mentioned outlawing arsenic because it was used so often by assassins. And, and Noel, I, I love that you point out the medicinal or the perceived medicinal benefits of arsenic because that's a thread that we see continuing uh, concurrently with its popularity as a poison. And earlier, just a moment ago, we mentioned that the 15th century is crucial to arsenic's role as a poison used by everyone from jilted lovers to assassins to uh, wealthy Italian aristocrats. This is the moment where if arsenic was some sort of pop star, it suddenly recorded its breakout single. Yeah, and I think the reason that that's a good way to put it is because it actually had a substance, had a huge impact on politics, especially in Italy. Italians, as it turns out, um, had quite the reputation of wielding this substance and poisons in general um, for political gain. So in the Italian Renaissance, uh, you may have heard of the Borgia family, and there was a, I think there was a, Netflix series called The Borgias, or maybe it was um, AMC or something like that, but mm. you can get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jeremy Irons is in it, but it chronicles this pretty shady Italian Renaissance family that were quite powerful. In fact, Rodrigo Borgia, who actually went on to become Pope Alexander VI in 1492, so no slouch and um, big, big social climbers, these Borgias. Um, and he had two children. One was uh, Cesare, 
Mm. So I think I hope I did that okay. That was and good. then the other one was Lucrezia. And Lucrezia actually is the one who got sort of a bad rap as mm. being a, a poisoner because there is an opera by Donizetti called Lucrezia. And there's a scene in it where she apparently poisons several people. Five. Um, right? Five people. And uh, history doesn't really support that. In fact, uh, she was apparently quite a pious woman and uh, died without probably ever having poisoned anyone. Mm-hmm. And just credit where credit is due up front. Um, we're getting a lot of this information from a fantastic book called The King of Poisons, A History of Arsenic by John Parascandola. So Lucretia seems to have her hands mostly clean, um, but her brother, Cesare, or Cesare, um, is the one who really took this to the next level. And as we'll get to, it's interesting because poison got a bit of a rap as a quote-unquote woman's weapon. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that later. So Cesare Borgia uh, apparently was guilty of just poisoning hundreds of people, dozens at the very least, um, in his pursuit of a political career. It was like his MO, his modus operandi. And what's fascinating here is that poisoning via arsenic became so prevalent and well-known in Italy that it was considered a formal method of assassination. And earlier in the beginning of the show, uh, you may have heard the phrase, Italianation. Italianation. I do love that. Italianation was the slang term for uh, poisoning via arsenic outside of Italy. I think the Brits came up with that one. It's and very and, British. Yeah, and we'll get to how this ultimately spread from Italy elsewhere. But before we do that, I just want to talk about this. There were a handful of poison assassins that, that had that really made names for themselves, um, one of whom was Julia Tofana. La Tofana. Or La Tofana, which I love. All of these uh, assassins have these amazing shorthand names. Um, and she, her story goes a couple of different ways. There's, there's, there's several versions of it. But one version is that she invented this mixture, uh, a harmless-looking liquid um, that apparently uh, is as few as four to six drops would be enough to, quote, destroy a man. And the principal ingredient in this material, uh, which was called aqua tofana, is thought to have been arsenic. And you got to think about the time we're talking about, where men ruled families and governments with an iron fist, and women were nothing but chattel. So to empower women mm-hmm. with this material was lots of fun. I was able to do because it, it, you know, there are many historians who say every woman in Naples probably had a bottle of this stuff in their, you know, medicine cabinets among mm-hmm. their perfumes that only mm-hmm. they would know which one it was. This is this is a crucial point uh, because. I don't know if we're jumping ahead too much with this, but it it seems like a good time to mention the method of delivery uh, that was that was employed often in Italy. It wasn't an immediate death. And this is a a, instead a slow poisoning. So you would have there's this old myth I found or this old legend uh, that said women in particular parts of Italy to keep their husbands faithful would supply them with a small amount of poison and then a small antidote, so they had to keep coming back home. Mm-hmm. But uh, regardless of the ra- veracity or uh, falsity of that, we do know it's true that people were being poisoned slowly rather than immediately, often, you know? It's true, and I actually found another fantastic article called Aquatofana, Slow Poisoning and Husband Killing in 17th Century Italy uh, from a website called A Blast from the Past, and it's, it's, it's really kind of just a blog, but it was uh, written by... 
wow, it's not even really credited as having an author, but I, I checked everything and it had really great qualifying links and just a fantastic article specifically talking about the role that women played in this whole poisoning epidemic and Latifana especially being kind of the one that jump-started that and how a lot of her story is sort of the stuff of legends. But to your point, Ben, the idea of the slow poisoning was really important in uh, very devout Catholic Italy, right? Because it gave the dying husband time to do a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One of which was get his affairs in order. If you're talking about this uh, inheritance powder, making sure that the wife would be well provided for and the family would have all they needed after he passed. Or the church would have a donation. The church would have a donation or that he was able to repent for his sins. Mm-hmm. So this is a really interesting thing because that slow meeting out of poison through food or drink was really a crucial part of this whole thing. And there's a fantastic quote in this article from Chambers Journal, which was a magazine started in 1832 by William Chambers. And it's a little long. I'm just going to read part of it just to kind of give the sense of, at the time, how this was looked upon. Administered in wine or tea or some other liquid by the flattering traitress, it produced but a scarcely noticeable effect. The husband became a little out of sorts, felt weak and languid, so little indisposed that he would scarcely call in a medical man. After the second dose of the poison, this weakness and languor became more pronounced. Uh, the beautiful Medea, see there's a lot of language in here that characterizes this woman as some sort of horrible, murderous, harpy type character, like referencing Medea. Uh, Uh, But obviously, you know, in the political landscape of the time, there's kind of a gray area there. But we'll get to that later. This beautiful Medea, who expressed so much anxiety for her husband's indisposition, would scarcely be an object of suspicion and perhaps would prepare her husband's food or prescribed by the doctor with her own fair hands. In this way, the third drop would be administered and would prostrate even the most vigorous man. Okay, and then this is the last bit. To save her fair fame, the wife would demand a post-mortem examination, resulting nothing except that the woman was able to pose as a slandered innocent. And then it would be remembered that her husband died without either pain, inflammation, fever, or spasms. This is important because uh, for a long time, arsenic was a difficult poison to identify. Not only was it odorless and colorless and so on, but arsenic poisoning exhibited symptoms that could easily be confused with symptoms of diseases that were common at the time, such as cholera, which you will remember from uh, several other strange episodes we have done on ridiculous history. And because, again, it was naturally occurring and considered medicinal, people were able to easily obtain arsenic. Uh, this, you know, in our earlier episode on Guy Fox, we talked about the relative ease or difficulty of acquiring gunpowder. It was much easier to acquire arsenic. And additionally, arsenic was used in so many other things. We'll get to that in just a second. I have a great list for you, Noel. But before we do, I think we need to bust some stereotypes here. The idea of poison being so closely associated with Italy, this concept thrived because it sort of justified the stereotypes that the French or the British already had about Italians. They thought they were devious, you know, Monty Burns-esque hand rubbers. Sure. And they often described it, you know, as an Italianation or as a um, an Italian method of murder with the connotations being that it was somehow cowardly. But the French 
and the British both were often using arsenic. They were just claiming it was an Italian thing. It's true. It was actually Catherine de' Medici who married Henry II, who would go on to become the king of France in 1533, who is given lots of credit for bringing the uh, uh, Italian method of, mm-hmm. of assassination to France and specifically in using it for political gain. Yes, and by the 16th century, uh, court records revealed that uh, cases involving poisoning were occurring regularly in Britain, uh, if not frequently. Uh, there were about a dozen recorded poisonings between 1571 and 1598. And of course, one of the most popular choices of poison was, in a stunning plot twist, arsenic. Yeah, and in France, Louis the Fourteenth got so weirded out by this whole thing and feared for his life to the point that he established a special commission with the express purpose of investigating this phenomenon. It took them until 1682 to finish, during which time 104 people were tried, 34 were executed, and the rest were either banished or got prison terms. And then this is the first time you start to see Maybe not super well codified uh, regulations regarding the sale of poison, but mm-hmm. it was a little bit more draconian where if you were caught supplying someone poison for the purposes of committing a murder, whether or not they succeeded, you would be subject to death yourself. Right. So not a fine, not imprisonment, but a hard death penalty if you are even accidentally associated with an unsuccessful murder attempt. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Sometimes to get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. We're nothing if not trailblazers here at Ridiculous History. And you know who also is a huge uh, iconoclastic challenger of the status quo, Ben? Who is that, Noel? Well, I think you know. It's hmm. Harry's. Yes, it's Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by all kinds of like slipshod, questionable products in the shaving industry. And they said, hey, you got to be the change. I was excited to try out the Winston set. It's an all-in-one package. You get some shaving cream. You get that great razor we're talking about. 
They also have deodorant. Yeah, I was about to say. Very helpful. I do really enjoy uh, their line of self-care products. Um, Richly lathering, skin-softening body washes and scents like redwood, wild lens, and stone. You want to know what a stone smells like? I've often wondered. Only you know you can. <laughs> so don't settle for the status quo, folks. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash history. Once again, that's harrys.com slash history for a $3 trial set. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's this. There's always a catch. So when we heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, what's the catch? So we dug in. And after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Can you believe that? Mint Mobile's got a secret sauce, babies, and it is that they sell wireless service online and by doing so, cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet, sweet, delicious savings directly onto you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. And as we trace arsenic in the world of Western Europe, I guess I should say the region, but saying the world of Western Europe sounded cool, you know, had this time life vibe. Anyhow, as we see, the laws were slow to evolve in step with arsenic's evolution in terms of popularity. In fact, before 1851, there were no laws against selling poison in England. There's just it, it just hadn't occurred to anybody that there should be a law against that. And amidst the panoply of poisons available there, it was especially easy to purchase arsenic. No, I like that one, Ben, the panoply of poisons. That's a good one. Ah, oh, thanks so much, man. Amidst this great selection, did we mention the difference between naturally occurring arsenic and arsenic compounds yet? A little bit at the top of the show, but why don't we circle back? Because I think that is a good point and something worth exploring just a little bit further. All right, so we mentioned that arsenic was a known thing that occurred in the natural world. And you could see it in soil. You could see it in groundwater. But what is what is white arsenic? What do we mean when we say that? Well, arsenic is, of course, an element. Uh, and the symbol is AS. And its atomic number is 33 with a mass of 74.9. And it is in group 15 of the periodic table, along with things like nitrogen, mm -hmm. um, bismuth, phosphorus, and antimony. Um, and you know, so it is considered a metalloid. It's the 20th most common element, I believe, in soil, right? That's right. And apparently it's estimated that its concentration in the Earth's crust uh, goes from between one to five parts per million, which means that it is not particularly prevalent in the Earth's crust, but it's associated with so many other metals and human activities that it becomes more prevalent in the Earth's crust. And this means that... Uh it is entirely possible for people to receive arsenic poisoning without someone attempting to poison them, right? I think even in our Poison Squad episode where we talked about adulterants in food, arsenic, low levels of arsenic, that is, uh, was one of the potential adulterants that Harvey's Poison Squad were, were looking at. 
Right. So white arsenic then is a poisonous trioxide of arsenic, which Noel, I believe you mentioned at the top of the show. And, and it has legitimate uses. It's been uh, used as a pesticide, rat poison. It's been used to manufacture glass, but it was just top notch when it came to uh, being an agent of mortality. But along with this, and I think this this is important to mention. I don't know if this fascinated you as much as it fascinated me, but along with this known use of arsenic as a tool for assassination, it was also used in so many other things. It went into food coloring. It was used in beauty products uh, such as, get this, arsenic complexion wafers. They were meant for women uh, who wanted to remove blemishes or felt that their hands were too darkly colored. That stuff was still available in the 1920s. There's this excellent article by Hania Ray called When Poison Was Everywhere, uh, available at The Atlantic. And it's it's a review of a book called uh, Bitten by Witch Fever, which examines all of the different products that uh, contained arsenic but were advertised also as containing arsenic. Like wallpaper was huge. I had no idea. Yeah, it was, I believe, uh, used in green pigment, I think, is where I, yeah, what I read. absolutely, which is, uh, it was used in green pigment and stunningly popular due to a wallpaper manufacturer named William Morris. But what people found is that this green pigment was so dangerous in terms of its arsenic content that it some of that wallpaper is still off-gassing today. And books that collected William Morris's wallpaper, uh, several of them have to be uh, quarantined effectively. They have to be contained because you can't flip through the pages without getting arsenic poisoning. Jeez, just from like touching it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Ben, I think I, for one, really needed that little diversion from all the uh, the chaos and, and, and death uh, throughout history um, at the hands of those wielding arsenic. So, you know, a little tainted wallpaper is a nice respite um, from this. But unfortunately, we do have to go back into uh, this troubled history. Ah, yes, to the history. And uh, troubling is a perfect word for it, Noel. We mentioned earlier some stuff about France and some stuff about Italy. Let's take a closer look at England. We see in the Victorian era that it was, as as you had mentioned earlier, uh, arsenic was considered a woman's weapon, quote unquote. And Reviewing cases uh, from England in 1840s, researcher Ian Burney found that in 60% of the cases, uh, the accused party was a woman, 37% of whom were charged with poisoning their spouse. And, Burney notes, in 70% of these poisoning cases, the poison used was arsenic. It was much, much more popular than the, um, I think the second most popular poison would have been opium, but it was a distant second. And, you know, you mentioned again this idea of, like, um, arsenic being a woman's weapon. It's such a derisive term in the same way that the whole Italianation thing was a way to kind of poo-poo the Italians and Mm. call them cowards. Calling it a woman's weapon was basically saying the women were weak, and the political landscape surrounding their use of this, like I read at the top of the show, largely, I mean, of course, there there were very nefarious reasons to use this material to have someone killed. Uh, but a lot of times it was used by women to get out from under the thumb of an abusive husband. Women were abused. And it especially was true where a lot of these high-profile cases involved much more aristocratic members of society. But as it turns out, in England especially, it was much more likely to be used as a tool of those in poverty. 
because they had no recourse to escaping these horrible lives. It was even used on children um, when the family couldn't feed them anymore. Um, so there's a real dark history there. So I think it's really important when we talk about these terms that we, you know, talk about the context, too, that they were wielded in. Right, yeah. This uh, These became articles of oppression and tools of prejudice, especially when consider that the data people were looking for uh, was largely constructed to conform to their pre-existing views. Uh, and we see the rank hypocrisy here as well. But we see another big problem when, when we ask about uh, how they knew that arsenic was found in these cases. They didn't really have a way to test for it, so they would have to construct a timeline, you know, like um, ye old English version of Casey Beckram uh, kills somebody with arsenic. How do they know it's arsenic? The best way they would be able to detect it for a long time would be to speak with the person who sold it to him. Uh, thus, the law in France, right? It was the best way to find arsenic. The first known case in which convincing proof of poisoning ever showed up in court didn't take place until 1752 in Oxford, England. Was that the one where they found the residue at the bottom of the food bowl? Yes, yes. The accused party was a 31-year-old woman named Mary Blandy. Uh, she was charged with poisoning her father with arsenic. And and you heard about this one too, right? We, I think we both read about this. Mary administered the powder to her father in food and drink, and he became ill, but also two servants who had eaten some of the same food suffered the same effect, and that's when they noticed this powder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's circumstantial evidence of the servants having eaten the food too and come down with the same symptoms is what probably led the judge to be like, well, clearly this was not entirely um, natural causes if there are several people of different ages and health um, experiencing the same stuff. Uh, and there were very, uh, as this book describes, nonspecific chemical tests that were done, which to me just kind of says they probably weren't very good and didn't work and weren't reliable. Because as we'll go on to discuss, a real chemical test that actually unequivocally prove the existence of this stuff in food or, or corpses wouldn't come along in, uh, for a little bit later. And in fact, the the nature of the tests in this case were described as showing that the materials used in the, the you know, the, the food behaved in the same way that arsenic would have. So it's, it's very, very general stuff. She did actually confess to putting this powder into her father's uh, food, but apparently she claimed to have not known it was poison. And this is interesting. Part of the story is that she was having an affair with a Scottish soldier by the name of William Cranston, and he heard that her father had a sizable inheritance that she was due to receive. Um, so, it's, you know, he makes he comes off sounding like a, a pretty, pretty big rascal in this story. A real pill. Yeah. But he gave the poison to Mary and told her that if she gave it to her father, he would be more likely to accept <laughs> their their romance. That was how he put it. So she claimed that she didn't know it was poison, kind of played dumb a little bit there. Unclear if she really believed that or not. Um, certainly doesn't make her come off looking particularly uh, sharp here, but um, the the jury did not buy it. Right. The jury did not buy it, and partially based on the arguments of the physician, Anthony Addington, uh, Mary was hanged. 
Uh, Cranston fled to France, died soon afterwards, and this all started bugging a chemist at the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich, England, uh, a chemist named James Marsh, because he said that the tests Addington conducted were suggestive of arsenic, but did not provide conclusive evidence, the kind of stuff that we be open and shut in a court of law. The kinds of things we think about every day now with forensics, you know, we take that stuff for granted, but it's it's a pretty, pretty big deal and uh, really eliminates a lot of hearsay and a lot of very spurious uh, evidence that could ultimately convict people that were not guilty of the crime. Yes. And for instance, he was called, Marsh was called up in 1832 to test for arsenic in a murder case in Plumstead. The accused party was charged with murdering his grandfather, and there was evidence that the grandson had purchased arsenic, uh, purportedly as a rat poison. So they asked Marsh to test some coffee that had made several people in the house sick, including the grandfather, and test the stomach contents of the corpse. He was able to produce a yellow precipitate which showed the presence of arsenic in the coffee but this didn't really seal the deal for the jury and he couldn't prove there was arsenic in the stomach the jury acquitted the defendant the grandson who later get this came back and said yeah i did it i totally did it man adding insult to injury uh, especially for marsh um because he was incredibly irritated by this whole situation and vowed to come up with a more um let's say stable test so he kind of piggybacked off of some of the work of a uh, chemist by the name of Carl Scheele, um, who figured out that arsenic acid reacts with zinc, and it creates this compound, this gaseous compound um, of arsenic and hydrogen that is called arsine. And again, this is all from King of Poisons, A History of Arsenic by John Gondola. So Marsh was able to improve his test by piggybacking off of this research so basically, he was able to capture that gas, and it leaves a film on a material that he was then able to test. Um, you had to heat it, and then he would test it, and then you could tell kind of roughly how much arsenic was in the sample based on the size that the film produced. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. 
And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. So this is a good thing, right? You could tell how much arsenic was in the sample based on the size that film produced, and then any other scientist worth their salt uh, could test that sample and say, yes, there is in fact arsenic in this. There's no more questionable methods. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we have a good system for deciding whether or not this stuff is present in everything from food samples to corpses post-mortem. Mm-hmm. You can do these tests on bodies. And then there is even a better version of the test beyond that where you could detect smaller amounts, which is probably what you would need for testing a corpse to find trace amounts or, you know, see if there were amounts beyond normal atmospheric levels of arsenics that would be found in a body long after they had died. Yes, beyond what uh, I've I've decided to refer to as ambient arsenic. Ambient arsenic. So, yeah, uh, Hugo Range develops this quicker, simpler test in 1841, and we see the um, the dark magic of arsenic being whittled away by the scientific method and the advances of the day, and this leads to a tipping point. Now, remember earlier we had said that uh, there were some initial laws, royal edicts that came into play with arsenic before it was possible to test for it effectively. Now that we, being human civilization, can detect the presence of arsenic, you would think maybe its popularity dies down. However, not so, at least not immediately. You see, arsenic was still readily available and inexpensive. And if you're poisoning someone, then you're hoping maybe this person will not be of enough consequence to warrant a medical investigation. Maybe they'll say clearly they had cholera. So now let's just bury them. And this eventually led to Parliament saying we have to do something about this. They attempted to pass legislation as early as 1819 to regulate the sale, finally regulate the sale of poison and drugs such as oxalic acid, uh, corrosive sublimate or mercuric chloride, and of course, 
arsenic. The drugstore owners were concerned that big pharma at yeah, the time, yeah, cottage pharma, oh, yeah, yeah, cottage pharma at the time uh, thought that this would interfere with dispensing medicine, and they successfully opposed it, uh, opposed this legislation, and it was ultimately withdrawn. But that was just the first volley of a longer legislative process. Yeah, then things got a lot more like you would see today with, you know, um, if you could go to buy cold medicine at the store. Like for my kid, I still have to enter my name into a registry and show my ID to prove that I'm 21. This is exactly the case because, you know, you can use cold medicine to make methamphetamine. So – in uh, 1851, this thing passed called the Sale of Arsenic Regulation Act that required um, people buying arsenic to be 21 years old, and it required them to fill in their information in a poison book or a register, and then they had to sign for it. So you could have, like, much more of a paper trail, much less of a he said, she said, you know, who bought the poison kind of situation. So, you know, these things, these safeguards were put in place. It didn't curb the use of arsenic entirely, um, and in fact, in the United States, while it was not nearly as popular as it had been in Britain, the colonies or whatever, it was still going on. And, you know, you can argue in the same way you can about any kind of regulation, whether me filling out that cold medicine registry, you know, for buying my, my kids Theraflu uh, causes people to make less methamphetamine. That is up for debate. But historian Catherine Watson said that she was pretty sure that it did have a gradual effect reducing poisoning crimes, especially those involving arsenic. Um, but of course, you could have situations where people would maybe turn to other substances to mm-hmm. poison their uh, their enemies or mother-in-laws. Sure. Yeah. Mothers-in-law. Uh, you know, I think it depends on how many there are. <laughs> so uh, just to set the scene for you, friends and neighbors, uh, my co-host and I are looking a bit mournfully across our table here in the podcasting studio because we realize there's so many fascinating things about arsenic that we probably won't get into in this episode. Noel, I have with me a list of famous people who were probably poisoned by arsenic, as well as updates on latest research about their deaths. I got so much stuff, man. Serial killers. We didn't even get into that. But well, then I have a story about a little village in Hungary in 1929 where a, uh, a group of women were prosecuted for poisoning, like, literally everyone in town because they were all horrible, abusive men. Um, I think yours sounds less depressing. Let's go with yours. <laughs> man, I don't even know if we can. We might have to post this on our uh, community page, Ridiculous Historians. Just rattle off a few. Just, just to give people a taste. A okay. Give people a sweet taste of that, that delicious poison. Alleged victims of arsenic. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in oh, 1791. Ben, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to say I had that in my research, too. And there's a great quote from old Wolfgang where he speaks um more or less on his deathbed where he had fallen seriously ill um, and he was convinced that he had been poisoned. He says that he began to speak of death and then he said that he was setting this requiem, the Mozart requiem, which he is most famously known for, for himself. Quote, I feel definitely that I will not last much longer. I am sure that I have been poisoned and I cannot rid myself of this idea. Someone has given me aqua tofana and calculated the precise time of my death. Please, Ben, go on. 
only 35 years old. Poor guy, poor Mozzie. And uh, Napoleon Bonaparte in 1821, Alexander the Great in 356 BCE, allegedly Zachary Taylor in 1850, though that was later disproven. The list goes on and on, folks. You can read some of these uh, additional stories Noel and I found in full on our new community Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. We promise we're going to hop on there and put this up there. Right, Ben? Are we going to commit to it right now? Wonder Twin style. Boom. Done. We just put our fists together and lock it in. Yeah, locked it in and we made it made a little poof of magical dust. So we are going to head out today. We hope that you enjoyed our exploration of the strange story of arsenic. Uh, we also, of course, as always, like to thank our uh, mastermind super producer, Casey Pegram, who has, believe it or not, to this day, still not been convicted of poisoning anyone. Well, that's because it hasn't kicked in yet. He's been giving it to us a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And before you know it, we're just going to be begging him to take care of us and nurture us and give us hugs and belly rubs. I thought I had cholera. Then we'll be in the palm of his evil hand. And on our way to our arsenic-riddled graves. We'll be riddled. It'll just be trace amounts, probably, right? Yes, yes. Our our arsenic-tinged graves. I like it. We'd like to thank Alex Williams for writing our theme song. Be sure to tune in for our next episode where we reveal why and how Germany sacrificed sausage for war. And as a former little German boy, uh, I, I in fact spoke like a native, went to German kindergarten, uh, lived among the German people until I was six years old, the Germans do love a good Wurst. So I want to hear that story about uh, what would cause them to have to give up that delectable treat in the name of justice. And we can't wait to tell you in our next episode. In the meantime, the old folks can find us on Instagram. They can find us on Facebook. They can find us on Twitter, where we are some variation of ridiculous history. We're still wood shopping the Pinterest. Ben and I have combined our vision boards into a mega vision board involving dolphins and color swatches and crafts. We're putting out some Viewmaster adaptations. Uh, do you, does anybody else remember Viewmasters? That one? Yeah, can you hear the riveting tension as you move from frame to frame? Pictures of parks mainly. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's like one picture of a of a Reddit meme that's not appropriate for work. But again, that's all brainstorming and workshopping is. Uh, if you have some suggestions for a social media site we should uh, we should move on to, go ahead and let us know. You can write to us directly. We are ridiculous at HowStuffWorks.com, and most importantly, we hope that you would join us next time for another episode of Ridiculous History. Thanks, everyone. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. 
True story, the intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.